Welcome to the Hearsay Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Off the Rails, was sponsored by the Filling Station Microbrewery and recorded live at the Traverse Area District Library in Traverse City, Michigan in August 2015. In our first story, Catherine Henning Callison finds that the art of repeating her own story about riding a train in Spain showed her a lot about becoming what she fears. I'm an attorney uh, by trade, so speaking in front of people is not new to me, but storytelling is, and so I'm pretty nervous. But I've always been someone who tries to push myself outside of my comfort zone. And uh, one of the things that I have done to that end is study abroad uh, twice in Spain, um, one time during undergrad and one time during law school. And when I went over during undergrad, it was right after September 11th. We were in a messy war with, or I'm sorry, operation with Iraq. We all felt a little uneasy about, not all of us, but everyone on all the students from the liberal university I was at who were taking this trip abroad. Um, So we all kind of wanted to distance ourselves from being thought of as the ugly Americans or the the quintessential Americans who, you know, the Philistines who would go over and have no appreciation for their culture. It was a real fear and a real worry for me. It kind of reminded me of when I was in junior high and I would want my mom to drop me off further away from the movie theater so no one would see. And the same way I didn't want my motherland's quirks and and baggage to be following me to this other country when I was trying to make new friends and um, have experiences over there. And so some of my prouder moments, and in retrospect, I'm not proud that these were my proudest moments, but were when I was mistaken for non-American. One instance was, and I remember the elderly people over there just seemed especially tenacious to me. Uh, They had very much that I am right, you are wrong. My life experience tells me everything including your nationality. And I had this older man come up to me and say, you're German, right? And I said, no, I'm, I'm from the U.S. He said, no, no, you're German, and walked away. I was like, <laughs> and th- this was um, pretty common in my interactions with the older people over there. But I have to say, not everything was what I expected. Um, people didn't turn out to be the cliches um, that without realizing it, I had presupposed in my mind. I was invited in by a lovely family, a host family, and the dynamics, you know, were similar to mine. Even though my family is one of, you know, Tolstoy's unique, unhappy families, I found another one in Spain, and they welcomed me with open arms. And there was just a universality to... Um, this feeling of family, and it was beautiful, and uh, I became very, very, very homesick. So my mom came to visit, and as a surprise, she brought my younger sister, who had just given birth to a baby literally maybe two months before, and she had uh, flown across an ocean to come and brighten my trip, and it was just, it was really beautiful. 
So they met me in Madrid, and we decided to take a train because Spain's not that large. You can travel all over uh, through their excellent train stations. Uh, um, so we met at the Madrid Grand Central. We were going to Toledo because, you know, as a foreign exchange student, I would never say Toledo or something, or Barcelona rather than Barcelona, of course. Uh, so we're waiting to get onto this train to go to Toledo, and my sister gets on with me, and we don't, we've, we've bought our tickets too late to sit right next to each other. Uh, and they're set up like uh, the four seats, two facing each other. And so I tell my sister, and at this time I've, point I've had some time to practice my Spanish. I'm feeling a little more comfortable. I've been there a couple months. So I tell her, oh, don't worry, sit down and I'll use my superb language skills to explain to whoever has that seat that, you know, they're solo anyway, so can they just swap so my sister can sit next to me for this trip? Like, it shouldn't be a big deal, right? The universality of people tells me that this should not be a big deal. So shortly thereafter, onto the train walks General Franco's mother and her parents. It, it, it was the very quintessential, you know, black scarf, hunched over, um, provincial Spanish, almost peasantry, I want to say. It was just like out of a story book. And, the, and they come up and they all start clucking at each other and doing the pantomiming, you know, pointing to the seat numbers and are you seeing this? There's someone in my seat. You know, just the indignation and um, conferring with each other to make sure that they're right before they pull out their, you know, Don Quixote sword and come after us for breaking the rules of travel. Uh, so as my poor sister, hormonal and missing her baby, who she's left in the U.S., starts getting screamed at by these three older Spanish people in Spanish. What are you, stupid? Do you not know numbers? Have you never learned to read? They have the seat numbers right up here. And I'm desperately trying to find a way to get a word in edgewise and say, we understand, but can we ask you to switch spots with us? I, I couldn't. I just... And I was getting more and more flustered, and certainly my language skills weren't getting better <laughs> throughout the exchange. Uh, so they were literally screaming at my sister. Her, uh, our whole family just turns red and cries, you know. If we're frustrated, angry, embarrassed, the tears just come anyway. And then, as I said, she had just had this baby. So she's just pouring tears. I'm <laughs> trying to get in a word, and none are coming to me. And eventually, this whole car of Spanish people is screaming at these three elderly people, she doesn't speak Spanish. She doesn't speak the language. And they just, they couldn't, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Until finally, someone actually came up and pulled them aside to tell them in Spanish the situation. So needless to say, they were not willing to switch seats. <laughs> But there were two of them, you know, mix-matched in those four seats. So it started off as an awkward ride as we're facing each other and facing a two-hour trip to Toledo. And as the older woman sits down, Franco's mother, I assume, uh, she starts pantomiming so that everyone can be quite certain her seat is broken. It's 
it's broken. Just so flustered. One more, you could tell she was just wrestling with one more challenge before she got on the road. Uh, so I offered my, my powers of speech having been restored by this point. I politely offered for my sister, not me of course, to switch seats with her and sit in the broken seat so that we could do what we had originally planned to do and sit next to each other anyway. So the woman puts on a sheepish side smirk. I don't even know what to describe it as and says, okay. So she switched spots with my sister and as soon as she sits down, she looks at my sister, makes eye contact and says, they put the seat numbers up there so that you know when you get on the train what they are. <laughs> Still could not give up this position. And I've realized when I was preparing a story for this off-the-rails theme that I wanted to tell this train story. And as I was thinking about it and thinking about having told it to friends over the years or family, how often the focus of the, the story is this quintessential older lady. And I think the irony is that I started my trip there wanting to be anything but a stereotype. And yet whenever I tell this story, I reinforce the stereotype. Although there were probably 10 elderly people on the train screaming, she doesn't speak Spanish. <laughs> Those are not the, the people that I, I think about. So... When I think about my trip now, I try to think about the universality of people and that universality comes in our uniqueness um, and you can find that anywhere you go. But there, there are things that bind us and universal truths as well. And one of those universal truths is that old people get cranky when they travel. Christy Snyder's first ever solo train trip with her daughter was way more challenging than she expected it to be. I'm a literature teacher, and I love to read books. One of my top five favorite books is by Eric Lawson. It's Devil in the White City. How many of you have ever read Devil in the White City? It is this perfectly crafted novel that has two storylines going through it. One of the storylines is the developing and the creating and the execution of the Chicago's World Fair. And then running simultaneously along is the story of H.H. Holmes, who is a serial killer. My story is nowhere near as fantastic, and no one dies, but there are some similarities. This is the story of my daughter and I trying to take a train ride to New York City. And at the same time, there is a basketball game going on, March Madness, Elite Eight, West Virginia versus UK. 2010, my daughter and I decided to take a girl's trip to New York City to see one of my most favorite people in the whole wide world. My cousin had been living there since 2001 and had been begging for us to come out and visit her. My daughter got a little bit older, so we thought it's about time. And what better way to get to New York City than by train? 
our train ride was supposed to leave at 4 o'clock in the morning in Toledo, Ohio. At about 2.30, I get a phone call letting me know that there had been a derailment of about 40 coal cars scattered all over the train tracks somewhere in between Indiana and Illinois. So anything leaving from Chicago to Toledo, absolutely impassable, and vice versa. But everyone that knows me knows I have this high anxiety, and I get completely stressed out about timelines, deadlines, and punctuality. So I decided to go ahead, get to the train station a little bit early, just in case. About nine hours later, the train finally arrived for us to get into New York City. Immediately, we get into the cart, we go to the food cargo, get all of our breakfast, and immediately pass out for this 12-hour train ride because we had been at the train station since about 3 o'clock in the morning. As we are on this train ride into New York City, my cousin, who bleeds UK blue and was born and raised in Kentucky, and her husband, who was born and raised in West Virginia, decide to go to Jack Dempsey's. And if you've ever been in New York City, Jack Dempsey's is a bar that is dedicated completely to UK fans. There's over three stories of screens and bars and everything for the perfect UK fan. So what better place to watch this game that's obviously going to demolish West Virginia because everyone that knows UK is a powerhouse in men's college basketball. But nobody told West Virginia that. Because West Virginia ended up upsetting UK. And as my cousin's husband told me the first time in 50 years that West Virginia made it into the Final Four. So what better way to shove it in your wife's face that your team demolished hers by sitting down and throwing back beers? We finally get into Penn Station about 11 o'clock. We're absolutely exhausted. My cousin and her husband are absolutely inebriated. They meet us, grab backpacks, grab bags, grab suitcases, paperwork, hugs. How you doing? Haven't seen you in forever. Mwah, mwah. Get in the cab, uh, cab ride home. Get upstairs and just kind of drop everything. We end up spending an amazing week in New York City. First time my, for myself, first time for my daughter. Absolutely fell in love with the city didn't give that stack of papers that I gave my cousin a second thought until the day we were supposed to leave. Our return tickets home was in that stack of papers. Shit is right. I asked my cousin Patrick, hey, have you happened to see our tickets and that pile of paperwork that I gave you that night? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. I put everything on the table, and I just threw away some trash. Well, sure as shit, he threw away our tickets. And I thought, well, no big deal. I'm a pretty optimistic person. I'll just go down to Penn Station and explain to them what happened, right? Obvious upset, extremely long train ride delay. Everything will work out just fine. My daughter and I wake up extra early the next morning. We go down to Penn Station. 
I go into the customer service area expecting to meet some really nice, pleasant customer service person, you know, because that's who they put in the customer service. No, this big, semi-pleasant New Yorker woman was not going to take any of my shit or any of my tears. No matter how many times I try to explain and show her my receipt, I was not going to get another ticket returned home. Mind you, this is the first time as an adult I've ever traveled by myself. This is the first time as a parent I've ever traveled by myself. So I have my daughter, and we're sitting outside on the steps of Penn Station thinking, how in the hell am I going to get home? And tell my husband that we have to buy plane tickets. He was not pleased. We have to tell my cousin, guess what? We're spending another night in New York City. She felt horrible. Her husband felt even worse. We got margaritas and manis and petties out of it, so we were okay, even though we were a little shell-shocked. The next morning, we make up nice and early. We go over to LaGuardia. It is Good Friday, so the airport is absolutely packed. But we had our tickets, so we didn't care. They call our seat numbers, we get in, we sit down, and immediately we hear, ladies and gentlemen, we have about 10 to 15 minutes before we need to get onto the tarmac and take off. President Obama is going to be in our airspace. If we do not hurry up now, you are stuck here for the next two hours. I look at my daughter, she looks at me, and her little face gave me this complete an utter, oh, shit. It was a bonding moment between the both of us. It was a magnificent girls' trip. We made it into time and got the hell out of New York, finally. And that's when I learned it's not always about the destination, but the best stories come from the journey. Thank you. In our next story, Jennifer Strauss tells of how a house fire during her childhood pretty much derailed her. The month of July was an incredibly nostalgic month, month for me. I had a, a cousin who passed away from cancer very young. Um, most of July was spent in the city of Detroit uh, doing storytelling workshops and staff training for the Detroit Public Schools, a story unto itself. I went home for the whole week. That's where I was raised. And in my off time, when I wasn't working with the schools, I went back to my old neighborhood to take a visit. I went and wandered around McPalach Cemetery, the old Jewish cemetery at Woodward and Eight Mile Road, where my parents are buried, and my grandparents are buried, and Uncle Sam's there, and now Deb, and in between section 19 and 20, I visited with the mishpucha for a little while. I went to Belle Isle that was off limits when I was a kid because that's where all the drug deals were happening and you just didn't go to Belle Isle. It has now been reclaimed and it's a state park now and I rode my bike the nine miles around Belle Isle and saw that the fountain was working again and that the zoos had been restored and that the nature center was restored and it just thrilled my heart to sit on the Detroit River and see this. I visited 
all of the places in Detroit that I wanted to see because I hadn't been home in a while and I had been told that our city was coming back to life again. And there was renewal and revival everywhere that I looked and my heart was filled with joy. At dark that night, I stood at the base of Michigan Central train station. Have any of you seen this building in pictures or in real life? The old train station that had more traffic than just about any other train station in the history of train travel in our country. This incredible 18-story building, and I stood there in the dark, but not so dark because now there's spotlights that are lighting up this building, only it's vacated, right? So in the last mm, five or six years, they have started to renovate this building. But as of the late 1980s, when the last train pulled out of that station, it was destined for demolition, and nobody thought that anybody could afford to renovate that building, and nobody could afford to demolish it. And it couldn't be demolished anyway because it's a historical site. So this, this ruin in Detroit that nobody knew what to do with. Since the late 80s, though, revival's happening in that train station. Not only are the lights lighting up what we're calling now a classified ruin in the city of Detroit, but now there's an elevator and $1 million worth of windows have been installed in the last year. The people in Detroit say that if Michigan Central Station can be revived, the entire city of Detroit will come back. Detroit is a phoenix rising from the ashes. I was raised in the city of Detroit in the 60s. I was a kid in the Sandlot generation, raised by what we now call free-range parents. <laughs> they were just good parents when I was growing up. We got up in the morning and we were gone all day playing outside. The only way that I knew how to come back home at night for dinner was that my mother would come out of the back door and call for me, not on a cell phone, but with her big voice, that's where I got mine, out the back door, four backyards over to make sure that I knew when to come home for dinner. Sandlight generation, who would get up on summer mornings and gather all the kids from the more prolific Catholic families in our neighborhood and then fill in with a few others until we had two baseball teams, and we would play baseball all day long. And at night, go home to sit on the patio in the backyard with the transistor radio wedged in the fence, the chain link fence, and listen to Tiger baseball on those hot summer nights. I was the third girl born into my family. My dad really wanted a... Uh -huh. The story that was told in my family was that on the night that I was being born, my dad left Cincinnati where he had a furniture business at the time, and he was driving home to Detroit to be there when I was born, but I came a little early. And when he called and found out that it was another girl, my family told me, he turned around and went back to Cincinnati. Now, whether that's a true story or not, I'm not sure, but the truth of that story lived on inside of me because I became that boy that my dad wanted. And so it was my dad and I working on the car, me holding up the gas pump while he was putting it in. My dad and I, who built garden fences and shelves in the garage. My dad and I, who shoveled the front driveway when it snowed and mowed the lawn in the summer. My dad and I, who shared a love of Tiger baseball. The only thing at 11 years of age that was more important to me than Tiger baseball was my rabbit, Harvey. <laughs> 
Harvey, named after, I'm dating myself here, the Jimmy Stewart movie, where he had an imaginary six-foot friend who was a rabbit that he talked to all the time, and you had to wonder when you watched that movie whether that rabbit was really real. My rabbit was a massive albino with pink eyes that I walked through the neighborhood on a leash so everybody could meet Harvey. And when he wasn't on that leash walking through the neighborhood with me, he lived in a wired cage that my dad had made on top of a steamer trunk that, aunt, that my Aunt Sadie had brought with her when she moved from Russia to New York City. At that time, Harvey and baseball were my life. On my 12th birthday, my dad handed me a wrap package. I started to open it, and the smell of leather was coming out of the box before I even ripped all the wrappings off. And as I opened that box, I said, you didn't, you did, you didn't, you did, you did. Aw, oh, Dad. He had gotten me the baseball mitt that I had asked for. It was made out of soft brown leather. It was laced up tight. It had my favorite tiger's name on that mitt, LK line. I put that mitt on my hand. It fit just perfectly and I never took it off. Or at least when I took it off, it wasn't for very long. So I had that mitt on when I was eating cereal for breakfast. I had that mitt on as I was walking to school. I had that mitt on when I came home, hung it out of the bathtub, washed myself with the other hand. I had that mitt on when I went to bed, put it underneath the pillow and slept with it that way. One morning, I was heading out into the garage to feed Harvey when my mom stopped me because she was a little nervous about a 12-year-old girl who would never take off her baseball mitt. And she said, honey, your dad put some hooks in the garage. I want you to go take a look. Now, those hooks in the garage are going to be the place where you keep your bat and you keep your cap, and you're going to keep your mitt there. Honey, you can't wear the mitt all the time. Go out and take a look. I think you'll like it. And I walked out in the garage and I turned around and there next to Harvey's cage was a Tiger baseball shrine. There was a hook and on it my Louisville slugger that I got at bat day with LK Line's name on it too. There was a hook for my new cap. My dad had got me a new Tiger cap and a hook just waiting for the mitt and a banner, a Tiger banner right above. And I took that mitt off of my hand and hung it up and knew that I could always find it there. It was a very cold winter. And early that winter, well, our dog Goldie, who was a dog pound mutt, ended up having six puppies on the cold cement floor in the garage because she wasn't a very smart mom. My sisters and I ran out when we heard the squeaking of these new puppies, and we were so excited that Goldie had had puppies, we ran back inside and we said, Mom, can we bring him in the house? And she said, No. The dogs stay in the garage. You and your sisters can make a bed for them out there. Goldie will keep them warm. And she handed us a stack of old blankets to send us back out into the garage. Now, this garage was filled with my dad's equipment, our toys, three generations of bicycles stacked against the back wall, and a tool bunch scattered with the last project that my dad and I had worked on. My sisters and I went out there and hunted for a place to make this bed. And underneath the tool bench was the perfect spot. So we cleared everything out, Paul piled up all those blankets, moved Goldie and her six puppies into their new bed and thought that they would be secure and warm when my sister Leslie, the oldest, had the brilliant idea of taking the light that my dad and I used when we were working on the car, one of those on a cord with a cage around a light bulb so you can see really well under the engine, and said, this will keep them warm, and she put it on a hook underneath the tool bench, and the heat that radiated from that cage light seemed to be a wonderful way to keep those puppies warm in that cold winter. 
and it did. The puppies grew up. My sisters and I spent most of our time out in that cold garage playing with those puppies. When my mom was at work, my dad would let us bring them all into the house and let them run around the living room. And we gave five of those puppies away to a good home, and there was one left. And we were hoping that we could keep that last puppy, and all we had to do was convince my mother. It was 5 o'clock in the morning on a very cold February morning. We woke up to the sounds of my sister screaming, get out of the house or smoke in the house. Something's on fire. Get up. We met in the hallway upstairs. There was so much smoke we could hardly see each other. We filed downstairs and towards the door. My mother, thinking about the animals in the garage, went and opened up the door to the garage, which was attached to the house, and when she did, smoke billowed into the house, and she quickly shut the door. She ran outside and opened up the garage door. And when all that air and oxygen met with the combustion inside, things in that garage started to explode. And it was a good thing that our 65 fire engine red Mustang was parked so close to the garage that she couldn't open it all the way. Goldie ran out from under the door, but the puppy didn't follow her. My dad called the fire department and then filed us all down out to the end of the driveway. We were stood barefoot in pajamas in the cold, in the mud, watching flames consume our house and listening to that puppy screaming in the garage and not being able to do a thing about it. We heard the sirens coming from the fire department that was only a half a mile away and when those fire trucks showed up, the neighbors next door came out and ushered us into their house so that we didn't have to look or listen any longer and brought us inside so that we could get warm. After I had got a little bit more warm, I went down into the lower level of their house, into the laundry room, and looked out of the window and watched the firemen as they finished up putting the fire out. One of them had a shovel. And he was shoveling all the remains out of that garage. And as I watched him shovel a pile, there in that pile of rubble were the pieces of my rabbit cage. I don't know what stopped me from thinking about Harvey that morning, but if I had thought about Harvey that morning, I would have been in that garage saving him. I ran out the door of our neighbor's house. I ran across their lawn, across our lawn into the driveway. I grabbed the fireman and I said, did you find my rabbit? He was in that cage. And that fireman looked up holding one end of that shovel, put his arm around me and said, honey, we found the puppy, but we didn't find your rabbit. He must have ran out the back door. My father buried the puppy in the backyard. We moved into our new and luxurious temporary accommodations and the Red Roof Inn on Evergreen Road. We had to live there until April, until all the repairs had been done to our house and all the rebuilding that needed to be done. When we moved back into the house, everything was different. I was different too. All of a sudden, I had an overcoming fear that bad things were going to happen to me over and over again. Before I went to bed at night, I was unplugging appliances. <laughs> My family understood for a while, and then they thought I was a royal pain in the ass because I was unplugging the coffee pot and the toaster oven and my sister's curlers, and they thought it had become a little ridiculous. 
Before I went to bed at night, I had to check the furnace for some reason, totally OCD, and I had to open the new garage door to look out at an empty garage with no bikes and no toys, no tools, no rabbit, no rabbit cage, and just Goldie on a rug in the middle of that garage, an empty space where our lives used to be. The kids in the neighborhood all that winter would go out with me looking for Harvey. They knew what I didn't know. And it was years later when I realized how very kind and sweet that fireman was to a little girl who had a broken heart. It was a Sunday in April. I'm almost there. It was a Sunday in April. I was sitting in the backyard on the patio in a lawn chair that one of the neighbors had given us when we moved back in. My dad came down to the patio with two glasses of lemonade and he stuck the transistor in the fence and he said, Tigs are playing. The lawn needs cutting. I looked up and said, with what? And he motioned. Into the empty garage was a brand new lawnmower and a can of gas. And we filled that lawnmower up and we went out and turned on the Tiger game and we took turns mowing the lawn and listening to that game. There's an adage in baseball that says eventually everything will even out. A lot of things had changed in my life, but I was really happy that there was the comfort of those things that had not changed. Thank you. Tammy Evans explains the art of getting a passed-out friend home on a New York subway at 4 in the morning. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clickety-clack. The light strobed through the smeary train windows, flashing between flickering fluorescent white and subway tunnel black. It was the last train. It was the middle of the night abandoned, and there were only three stops left before a decision had to be made. Have you ever had one of those friends that uh, make life better and worse all at the same time? <laughs> you know, one of those friends who walks a very fine line between dancing on the table's life of the party and trying to talk themselves out of trouble back of a police car. One of those friends who despite all of your instincts to fly away, you find yourself always fluttering around like a doomed moth. Well, Nanette was that friend for me. She's five foot tall with two foot hair. She has the kind of hair that my southern speaker friends call jacked up to Jesus hair. She has a penchant for short skirts, a distaste for wearing undergarments, and a personality which facilitates this fact being widely known. <laughs> Most of our adventures together were crazy fun. Most of the time. The wonderful times, like the time she convinced me to spend a large chunk of my savings to travel across Europe with her, which to this day is still one of my very favorite travel memories. 
And then there were the almost train wreck times, uh, like the time we were in Tangier, when she attempted to flirt with the extremely conservative border guard, resulting in the confiscation of our passports as we were boarding our ship back across the Strait of Gibraltar. Now, after a tense period, I was able to get our passports back, and uh, perhaps it was my extensive seventh-grade French vocabulary, or perhaps it was the $40 that I slipped to him, or perhaps it was when he realized it would probably be better for his nation to get Nanette out of his country. <laughs> and then there was this night. This night had the potential to be Nanetageddon. <laughs> Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clickety-clack. This A-train that we were on would soon stop at 200th Street in Washington Heights, New York City. What a local New Yorker would call upstate Manhattan. And in order to get home, I needed to walk out the doors, climb four flights of stairs, walk down two blocks around the corner and upstairs to my studio apartment. Now, after a night out in the West Village at stupid o'clock in the morning, this is a daunting task in and of itself. On this particular night, however, the journey was made much more so by Nanette. Have you ever seen a child when they just fall asleep suddenly, when they give into a slumber so deep that a marching band could be playing all around them and they would not stir. Yeah, that's how Nanette sleeps. She runs high on all cylinders until she passes out, at which time it is then impossible to wake her. So at that moment, especially after a few triangle drinks... She was a blonde lump dreaming in a heap on the train bench beside me. And only one more stop. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clickety-clack. At that time, I was working as the personal assistant to Nell Carter, the Tony Award-winning actress. The job was a fast-paced mishmash of everything you can imagine, from setting her appointments to shopping for her clothes to riding along with her in a limousine to helping backstage at her Broadway theater to fixing her meals and monitoring her blood sugar to make sure that her diabetes stayed under control. The position absolutely demanded that I be able to problem-solve and think on my feet, and those of us that worked for her called it being in the Nell zone. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack. As our train screeched into our station, I switched into the Nell zone and hatched a plan. I got down real low, I crouched on the floor of the train, and I pulled Nanette onto my shoulders like an oversized rag doll backpack. The doors opened and I lurched through them with only the tiniest tip of Nanette's skirt being caught behind us in the door. And as the train screamed out of the station, the fabric stretched and then snapped free, to which Nanette gave a quick snort of protest and then slumped back asleep. The next obstacle sat pertly in a row in front of us like so many smiling teeth. The turnstiles. 
As the station was unmanned during that hour, walking through the ticket's turnstiles was the only way to exit the platform. Have you ever tried to get through those things with a giant right bag or a suitcase? Or imagine how I looked as I tried to go sideways through hoisting my cargo up as high as I could and finally getting shoved out through on the other side, which left me standing at the bottom of my next four-story challenge. I slowly started up the concrete steps, repeating the mantra that I knew would get me through. The phrase that, like Buddhist monks used, I could repeat over and over to give me the motivation that it would take to push me through this physical task. One word per step. Buns of steel. Buns of steel. However, by the time I reached the top, I was in full-on black beauty, pulling the cart up the hill, crawling my way up the last steps. But I was feeling like the worst was over. And then the van with the blackened windows drove by and slowed. It was 4 a.m. And when a van slows down, you speed up. I began jogging, well, slogging, stopping every few feet to hoist my flopping Nanette pack back up onto my shoulders. And it was during one of those adjustments that I heard her right shoe fall and roll along the sidewalk. As I turned to get it, I saw the van stop, the doors open, and several young men jump out. My mind was racing with two thoughts. Number one, screw the shoe. Number two, what can I possibly say to make these men leave us alone? One grabbed her shoe and started calling after us. Cinderella, come back. I'm your Prince Charming. And the whole laughing group was getting closer. This was one of those moments when I could actually feel the hair on the back of my neck standing up. Knowing that I could never outrun them, I stopped abruptly and I turned to face the group. Thinking back to my training from being in the Nell zone and not even knowing what the words really meant, I looked at them straight in the eye and I said, this woman is having a hypoglycemic episode. Unless you have glucose or insulin injectables, you need to let me get her home to her medications or something terrible will happen. So... Apparently, medical jargon is a perfect buzzkill for would-be troublemakers. <laughs> they turned and ran back into their van, leaving burned rubber floating in the air as they squealed away. So you can feel free to go ahead and keep binging on Grey's Anatomy. I'm just saying. <laughs> as I reached the front steps of my apartment and safety... I heard Nanette's left shoe fall off her foot and clatter to the ground. It was the proverbial other shoe dropping. And while I still know Nanette, 
That night, 20 years ago, was when I made the decision that that was the last time that I would embark upon an adventure with her that I thought might have the potential of running off the rails. Thank you. In Daniel Stewart's story, he tells us how his attempt at expert marksmanship was derailed by a close-range target and then an unexpected visitor. So I am leaning against the side of a ditch, uh, sweating freely underneath the hazy sun of, a, of an early August afternoon. I'm holding a, uh, a warm assault rifle in my hand, and I'm thinking, finally. I'm in the middle of Beast Barracks, which is uh, the field, in the, I'm in the field training portion of, of basic training for incoming cadets to West Point. And I expected from coming in that um, the whole point was to push me beyond my limits, so I knew that I would be failing fairly regularly. It's the, it's the way I'm failing that's beginning to get under my skin, because it turns out that I, I, I'm actually heavily invested in this notion that I'm not an idiot. Um, and I keep doing these things that turn out to be exactly the same thing that an idiot would do. Like, just in the field training, you know, when I'm in, when I'm in the part where I'm training with the grenades, you know, uh, and the instructor has to tell me, Stuart, if you, if you don't pull the pin, you are not attacking the enemy with grenades, you are supplying the enemy with grenades. <laughs> when, I'm doing the, when I'm doing the bayonet portion of the training, I have this heavy you know, dummy rifle that's made out of rubber, but it has a real bayonet on the end. And when I have to go over the six-foot wall, it turns out that if I do everything almost right, that when I'm at the hospital... Uh, the, the army specialist who is stitching up my, my arm, he doesn't even bother to hide the fact that he's laughing at me. <laughs> but then I get the real rifle, the M16A1. And the thought begins to occur to me, I'm good at this. Not like Annie Oakley good, but really good. You know, and I'm not used to firearms. My father was a cop, and he carried this really heavy, ugly 357 Magnum revolver. And, you know, he took me out shooting with it a couple of times. It didn't really take, take to it. So it's all pretty unfamiliar to me. And today is the day when I get to prove that I am who I think I am. Because today is the day I'm qualifying with that M16. So I am at the firing range, and I have ahead of me three targets at known distances. They will pop up at 300 meters, 150 meters, and 50 meters. They pop up randomly. I have a few seconds to hit the targets. I have 40 rounds. I have two clips of 20 rounds each. And as the targets are coming up, I am just knocking them down. 150 meters, knock. 300 meters, hit. And when I hit the targets, the targets are these you know, black silhouettes of a head and shoulders. When I hit the target, it falls over. And it's immensely gratifying. And the thought begins to occur to me that 
I'm going to make expert marksmen. Expert marksmen, the best badge there is. I'm going to get that. 150 meters, hit. 300 meters, hit. 50 meters, miss. 50 meters. Basically, you can hit a target that size with a rock at 50 meters. And I've now missed twice. And only after the second time does it, really, does it occur to me that I have to make two separate mistakes to miss a target that close. The first mistake is geometry. Because what I've learned is that as soon as the bullet leaves the barrel of a rifle, it begins to fall. It falls pretty much at exactly the same rate as if you hold a bullet in your hand and you just drop it. What that means is that when you're firing a bullet from a rifle, it travels in a, in a parabola. Now, this rifle has just standard iron sights, front and rear. Those sights are zeroed, what, they, what the Army calls it battle sight zero, to 200 meters. So at 200 meters, the bullet is exactly where those two, where those two sights are on the target. Beyond that, of course, you have, to aim up, you have to aim up a little bit to be able to hit that target. But what's counterintuitive, if the target is close to the 200 meters, you also have to aim up above the target because the bullet is still on, on the ascent of that trajectory. At 50 meters, making that mistake, just aiming right for center mass for the target and pulling the trigger, is enough to get me a little bit low. It's not, it's not enough to miss the target entirely the way I am. I have to make a second mistake. And this is the other thing that I've learned about handling this firearm, something I hadn't expected. It's really peaceful. When you're on the, when you're on the firing range, you have rubber plugs in your ears that block out the world. All you're focusing on is the targets directly ahead of you, waiting for something to appear. You don't control a rifle. You control yourself. The rifle is more powerful than you are. You control yourself to make yourself an ally of the rifle. What that means is you have to control your breath. You have to control the way your finger moves on the trigger. You don't pull the trigger. That will jerk the barrel. You squeeze the trigger until the gun goes off. To miss at 50 meters, I rush because it is so close, and I sort, my heart rate jumps, and I sort of get excited. I have exactly the same few seconds that I do at the longer-range targets. But the target pops up at 50 meters. I get overexcited because it is so close. I can get this, and I jerk the trigger, and it pulls the barrel down just enough so that the bullet lands with a little splash of dirt in front of the target. So I'm trying to stay focused. I'm in my second clip. I don't know how many bullets I've fired. I have 40. I have to hit 90% of the targets, which means I can miss no more than four times to get expert marksmen. I've already missed twice, both at 50 meters. I'm waiting. 150 meters. Target appears. Side picture. Breath. Squeeze, hit. 300 meters. Okay. Side picture, elevation, breath, squeeze, hit. 50 meters, side picture, pull, dirt. If I miss two more times, 
I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to do that thing that I said I was going to do today. So I'm just trying to stay calm, trying to stay within, my, within myself at this moment. 150 meters, okay. Again. Hit. Waiting. Cease fire. Somebody's yelling that, and then somebody else is yelling it, and then I'm yelling it because that's what we're trained to do. Cease fire. If you hear it, you repeat it. Cease fire. Ceasefire is the emergency break of the firing line. You don't know what's happening. As soon as you hear that, everything must stop. Something unexpected and dangerous is happening. Okay, I hear ceasefire. I repeat ceasefire. I relax on the rifle. I take my finger out of the trigger guard, and I look. What's happened? I've been so focused on only the targets appearing ahead of me. I see immediately what's happened. On the far left of the firing range. There's a deer right beyond the 300-meter target at the far left. There's, a, there's some scrub just, just on the edge, and it has appeared. And it is a couple of steps in. It has noticed all of us there with our rifles. <laughs> and it is, it is still and coiled in that way that we all recognize deer is having. Totally frozen, very tense, nothing moving but its ears. I'm waiting. We're all waiting for the all clear. The all clear will come when the deer clears the course. And I'm waiting with my warm assault rifle. They taught us the specs on this rifle. You know, you would never take an M16 hunting. The specs, which I had to memorize, the round, 5.56 five, NATO standard light armor piercing. That's not a hunting round. It's too small. It is less accurate than a hunting round. Why do we carry, a, why do we carry such a small bullet? So that we can carry a lot of them. This M16 has a full auto setting. That 20 round clip you can empty that in less than one and a half seconds. That's never something you would do to an animal. I'm 19. I've come of age in an America that as far back as I can remember, my, con in my conscious memory, which is not very long, it's been in America at peace. All of us here on the firing line, we're all, almost all of us are 18 or 19. Um, I spent a year in college, but almost everybody else, you know, two months ago, they were in high school. And now, here we are with M16s on the firing line, and we think we're going to become like officers in the Army, in this peacetime Army, you know? I'm in the hole. I'm sweating. My firing position is a simulated foxhole supported position. I have 40 rounds. I'm wearing a uniform, woodland pattern camouflage. It's called battle dress uniform. I'm wearing a soft cap. It is pulled down low over my eyes, two fingers above the nose, because that's the way we do it in the Army. 
I have my, I have my sleeves rolled and buttoned just the way we do it in the army. Because any other way, that's the way uh, a civilian or a monkey or a marine would roll, their, would roll their sleeves. But we do it the right way. Uniform. You know, it's hard for me to escape the feeling right at that moment with all these other 18 and 19-year-olds. I'm just wearing a costume and waiting there for the all-clear, watching this doe, golden-colored, rippling slightly, even in that hazy afternoon sunshine. Still, and in a moment, it's going to turn and run, or it's going to go over the, end of the, over the top of the hill. And, in, in, and for just those few moments of stillness, until we get the all-clear, the thought passes through the back of my mind. Am I who I think I am? Because I'm just going to wait. And I'm waiting for that doe to go over the hill to safety. Because I am not going to hurt something so innocent and so free. Thank you very much. In our final story, I tell of the time that I was stuck in a subway tunnel for two hours, and it upended what I thought about feeling stuck in life. It's the morning rush hour on a strikingly cold Tuesday in mid-April in Chicago. And, as always, I'm on the train going to work. I'm only five stops from the very first, so, as always, I've got a seat. And, as always, at this point in my life, as soon as the doors close and the train starts moving, I can feel myself die a little on the inside. I had fallen on stagnant times. I could barely stand to be in my apartment because there was paint peeling from the ceiling like onion skin. And to accommodate the drafts that winter, my landlord had weatherized all the walls, floor to ceiling. I was at the point that I could no longer pretend to laugh at my boss's jokes because the long-promised raise and promotion still had not come. And I could barely stand to be around my boyfriend, who had greeted me upon my return from my father's death in Mexico with empty pizza boxes, empty beer bottles, passed-out friends, and a crappy attitude because I had woken him up. At that point, I was always wearing what I had taken to call my fugly pants. They were black, some kind of fabric, I don't know what. Every stray white piece of animal hair, every stray leaf on the ground, every piece of fuzz attached to my pants. And I knew I looked terrible, but I didn't have the energy to care. At that point in my life, a good day was that I had found my favorite cereal on sale, and I would st stock up on boxes to put in my cubicle for future breakfasts. On the train that morning, I had a giant Target bag full of them. 
It had been my father's passing earlier that year, or excuse me, a year earlier, that had started this stagnance. I was questioning every single thing I did, but I didn't even know where to begin. I didn't believe in myself enough to fix anything. Whenever it was quiet, I would get into this thought, if I died tomorrow, did I live a good life? And the answer was no. But I kept shaking that magic eight ball again and again because outlook not good is not an acceptable answer, even if it's the one that you yourself have given. And as I sit on this fairly packed train heading into the tunnel, it's both a terror and a relief. You see, 10 years earlier, I had attended what I like to call panic camp because I had developed a severe panic disorder um, and the attacks were coming frequently and furiously and I had gone through outpatient therapy and I learned how to head off the fight or flight response to triggers for panic. But going into a tunnel the thought of getting stuck in a tunnel was one of my biggest triggers. And I knew that panic could make a triumphant comeback at any point. So as we would hurtle out of the daylight and underground, I always prepared myself just in case. Today could be the day. And yet there was a relief, a reprieve being underground because I could temporarily feel invisible. Our first stop in the tunnel, the doors are open a little bit longer than usual, but that happens, no big deal. I'm only one stop away. The doors closing message finally comes on and deeper into the tunnel we go. And then we stop. And then we go. And then we stop. And then we lurch forward a little bit. And then nothing. And nothing and nothing. I'd been stuck in tunnels before, five minutes that felt like 10, 10 minutes that felt like 30. But the muffled conductor sound had only said, thank you for your patience, folks. We'll be moving along shortly. But it seemed like we had been in the tunnel for quite some time before he said that. It was starting to feel like days. We passengers just kind of glanced around, kept doing what we were doing. People kept reading their books. Other people kept snoring away. Other people with their iPods kept listening to their music a little bit too loudly for the people who are not wearing headphones, staring at our shoes. And I comment to the woman sitting next to me. I said, oh, this isn't good. And she responds with a half smile to say, I heard you, and I don't care to engage. But more comments kind of hushed, almost apologetic. Um, they're wisping through the air at this point because it's been a while, but we're Chicagoans and underground, you know, being stuck in the subway is not really something to panic about necessarily. But time keeps ticking, the conductor keeps saying nothing, and the patience and the comfort are wearing thin. And then the lights go out. <laughs> and the gasps chain react throughout the train car that they have cut power means we're not going anywhere for a while. The questions about what is happening, they're no longer hushed. They're no longer apologetic. And it's getting hot in there. 
really, really fast. But fortunately, really, really fast, my recollection of how to deal with panic comes quickly. And so I take off my coat, I push up my sleeves, pull up my pants, my fugly pants, you know, because I want as much air on me as possible. And I say to myself, you're fine, Karen. You are fine, Karen. It snowed. We're all in hyper layers. You're not going to die of hot. Nobody has ever died of being hot. Well, except for that one time in 1995 in Chicago, but that was a totally different story. <laughs> <sighs> the panic does begin to bubble to the surface, but somehow it's not me. It starts with a woman who is supposed to be defending her doctoral thesis in 30 minutes, and she has sobbed herself into hyperventilating. There's no room on this train car to pace. It's rush hour, so the fidgeting and the <laughs> trying to swallow and not being successful and just profuse sweating is felling the passengers down the line. And then the pregnant woman, seated sideways directly in front of me, thinks she's going to be sick, but she's choking it down out of courtesy to us. <laughs> and I tell her, it's okay. I own a dog as a way of explaining how I am able to magically produce a plastic grocery bag out of my coat pocket. And she takes it and she's not done. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Oh my God, are you going to be okay? Here you go. I'm out of bags. She's not out of puke. So I take all the cereal boxes from my Target bag, and I say to her, this is the last one. Do you want me to see if there are other dog owners on this train? <laughs> Passengers have started opening the windows, and though the tunnel air does not smell good, it's cool, so it feels good. But then this guy... We hear him all of a sudden on his phone. Hey, yeah, I don't know when I'm going to be there. You know, we, they haven't really said anything, but I'll get there as soon as I can. <gasps> Underground service at that time, that was unheard of. And he was generous enough to pass his phone down to everybody, starting with the sobbing uh, thesis lady, um, to make similar phone calls. But when it's passed to me, I wave it off. I could not care less about the fact that I'm not at work. And in fact... I know, even though I'm unhappy to be in the tunnel, I can imagine myself less happy to be hunched over my bowl of cereal in my cubicle. Finally, the conductor says something, and he's not telling us yet again that, thank you for your patience, it'll be any moment now, because we don't believe him anymore. He's yelling expletives. Get back in the car. Close the door. Get in the car and close the door. Apparently, people in other cars had started bailing. And we were watching them walk past and thinking, are we supposed to do that? <laughs> I mean, after all, at this point, it had been two and a half hours. Ultimately workers came down to evacuate us all. And so we all put on our coats and walked 
alongside the tracks and then on some little walkway adjacent to the wall. And I had no idea where I was going, but I was just trusting that everyone in front of me did. And we, descent, we, we got to this spiral staircase that we had to climb up. And so I did that, but when I got to the, you know, to the grate, into the sidewalk to, to get to safety, um, and I had like sweaty hair plastered to my forehead, and I have just this armload of cereal boxes because I gave away my bag, <laughs> I was ill-prepared for the news camera that was trained on us, filming us all as we came out of the sidewalk, because this actually, this event was a very big deal. Um, I found out later that a car, a train three ahead of ours had had mechanical failure and didn't alert the other trains, so they kept going deeper and deeper into the tunnel until we were all stuck. And the train immediately behind that one had tried to push it into the station, but all that ended up happening was a whole lot of smoke, and that's when the, uh, the passengers started bailing. Uh, and they cut the power, and that's how we lost our lights. Ultimately, this event would lead to major overhaul of the emergency procedures for the Chicago Transit Authority subway. But more quickly than that, it inspired change in me. I got to work, and I'm placing each box of cereal into the cubicle, and I have this thought, this boyfriend, this apartment, this job, how is this my life, if I had died in that tunnel, did I live a good life? And then suddenly it hits me. I'm asking the wrong question. I'm asking a past tense question. What I should be saying is, am I living a good life? And of course, the answer is still no. But in the present tense, that actually gives hope. I still don't know how to fix it but I'm not dead. I didn't die, so how am I going to fix it? A year later, mid-April, I've been through grief counseling. I've broken up with my boyfriend, <laughs> and my job, <laughs> and my apartment, and I'm in the car with my dog, and all my books, and all my clothes, driving to try something new in Carretero, Mexico. Getting stuck in the tunnel may have been my biggest fear when I was at my cyclonic worst of panic disorder, but it took getting stuck literally and profoundly for two and a half hours getting stuck for me to realize once I got out from under and into the fresh air of the real world that I wasn't stuck. I had never been stuck. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to the Filling Station and the Traverse Area District Library. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.